0: Exploring the unique communities and neighborhoods of San Diego, this is City Stories. City Stories is produced by the students of San Diego City College in cooperation with KSDS Jazz
1: 88.3.
2: Welcome to City Stories. I'm John Fink. People beyond National City's borders either rarely go there or don't even consider it when they think of San Diego. This plays to the city's advantage because it has generated a very rich history, tightly knit communities, and a sense of pride that makes it stand out in the county. National City has also faced concerns over gangs and crime. The beauty of it is that the positives far outweigh the negatives, and this resilient South Bay stepchild is coming into its own. Anyone with a car or a TV in San Diego knows about the National City Mile of Cars. But not many people know just how important the Mile of Cars is to all of San Diego County. City Stories reporter Jeff Smith takes a closer look at this pioneering
3: marketplace. Bring up National City to San Diegans and a lot of people think Mile of Cars. For car shopping, this 15-block stretch of National City Boulevard is hard to beat, with nine dealerships carrying 20 brands from Ford to Fiat. Melissa Arnst is a young mother who brought her whole family to ball Honda on the mile of cars.
4: Um, it's close to where we live, and they have a good reputation when it comes to buying cars. Everyone's been actually really nice and not too pushy, which is what we're looking for. We have an older vehicle that we just keep putting money into it, and we need to not put money into it anymore. We just need to get something newer, so it's nice that they make you feel comfortable.
3: Back in the 1900s, as wagon trails gave way to early motor car travel, Native sons were getting in on the action. Affable National City Mayor Ron Morrison's office is overflowing with vintage memorabilia. He has an affinity for all things Americana.
5: You know, we had our first automobile dealership here open up in 1904, and it was the Hunt family. They, uh, they had the Hunt uh, Ford, and so they, they were selling the Model Ts, and uh, they were actually producing cars, and they produced the Huntmobile.
3: The brothers designed their car specifically to navigate skinny, rock-laden paths because they felt the Model T was less than ideal for local roads. In the 50s, auto dealer Kyle Morgan had a vision that was so successful, it got him elected mayor, a post he held for 20 years. Mayor Morrison.
5: Kyle Morgan had this big idea of putting car dealerships together, making an association and branding them as a group, which was unheard of because in those days, car dealerships were always on the outskirts of town because they were kind of an undesirable thing. And so therefore, you end up with the first car park in the United States, which was Myla Cars. Fast forward to the
3: 60s, when TV star and ventriloquist Sherry Lewis, with her puppet Lamb Chop, brought a little spice to the Myla Cars table. Owner of Ron Baker Chevrolet, Bill Cumming.
2: Back when this was Lamb Chevrolet, there used to be someone called Sherry Lewis that had a thing called Lamb Chop and I was not working at the time I was a teenager, but we came by and would watch or shoot commercials in the showroom. In fact, the top of our sign that turns now that says Ron Baker, it used to be a lamb on top.
3: Today, the association has an interactive website and a YouTube channel where you can check out their bilingual advertising. Working around Caltrans regulations, another type of publicity took shape that still shines. Mayor Morrison.
5: A collaboration that was done a number of years ago where we set up electronic signs on the 5, the 805, and the 54. And these were uh, in conjunction with the Milo cars and the Chamber of Commerce. They were not allowed to advertise anything except the Mile of cars and community events. If the lighted signage
3: on the interstate doesn't catch your eye, 24th Street has been officially renamed to Mile of Cars Way, and green highway exit signs point right to the heart of the district. The auto dealers meet once a month to foster cooperation. Bill Cumming. It's interesting that you have a group
2: of dealers. We're all competitors, but we're all friends and we all get along. We're all here for the same reason. That's why we have the Advertising Association, and that's why it's been so successful, is that we're trying to get
3: people to come to National City to look at cars or to buy cars or to have service, things such as that. From humble beginnings, young Bill showed persistence. It's a long haul from parts clerk to owner, but he just motored his way through. I came into parts, I'm I a parts manager, then I became the service manager, then the director. Then I went right in from the service director position to the used
2: car manager position. And then from there I went to the general manager position. And it's completely opposite
3: ends of the world. Bill's inspirational tale gives self-assured new salesman Aiden Torres something to shoot for.
6: No, I've never sold anything before. On my first day I sold two cars. I got an interview here at uh, Ron Chevrolet and I got hired. I guess... Uh, they like my hands on this.
3: <laughs> Down on National City Boulevard, you won't find luxury brands. The lots here are stocked with dozens of budget friendly choices. Mayor Morrison.
5: You had to have Cadillac, you had to have Mercedes. And so when this recession hit, those were the ones that took the hardest hits. We've always stayed more with those that are for families. And all of a sudden, people that were buying Mercedes before, you know, bought a Toyota. And so our sales, even though they've dropped, did not drop nowhere near as much. And we keep real close tabs on that.
3: He's just a kid, but Austin Arnst gets it.
0: I'm happy that we're getting a new car because our old car, our air suspension went out, so now we're just (laughs) bouncing every time.
4: (laughs) Don't lie, you like it.
3: (laughs) Early trendsetters like the Hunt brothers could never have imagined that over 100 years later, the fabric of National City would be so interwoven with the automotive industry. One of the first auto models in the world, the Mile of Cars provides more jobs than any single employer in the city. In a traditionally cutthroat business, they're taking the high road by working together. For City Stories, I'm Jeff Smith.
2: The Mile of Cars is a magnetic oasis that car buyers seem to trust. That's something not usually associated with auto sales. To find out more, go to mileofcars.com. Some buildings are landmarks just because they hold a lot of history. But Napoleon's Pizza is a National City landmark that is as alive and popular as when it opened in 1958. Talk to almost any resident of National City about where they want to go for pizza, and the answer is usually Napoleon's. City Stories reporter and regular customer Robert Bush shares why they recognize his voice when he calls there.
7: In today's world where the mega pizza chains and the $5 cardboard taste-alikes prevail, this town boasts an exception to the rule that continues to thrive. On National City Boulevard, sandwiched between the El Camino funeral home and a used car lot, Napoleon's Pizza isn't just a rare example of an independent, family-owned restaurant, it's a cultural institution where generations of customers gather with a loyalty bordering on devotion. Current owner, Peter Cravello, is the nephew of original owners Joe Sardo and Mike Fiorentino, who opened shop in
8: 1958. They were tuna fishermen. Once the cannery started going downhill in San Diego, they needed something else to do. Went into the restaurant business. My father has been here all 55 years as the little kid in the back washing dishes, 14 years old. Myself, I've been here 24 years.
7: Many customers have been coming for
8: decades. We're on the fourth, fifth generation of the same customers. Probably, I would have to say, uh, my clientele, I would know 70% of them by their first name.
7: Olympian High School drama teacher Jennifer Schaefer lives in Chula Vista now. Still, she's a part of that family continuum.
1: My kids' birthday parties have been there. My son, who just graduated from high school last year, his graduation celebration was there, so baptisms and birthday parties. Kind of, it's just been a place for family to
8: gather.
7: Peter Cravello has a theory about why his customers are so loyal.
8: Comfortability. What we pride ourselves on is uh, having fresh food, great service. Our prices, you can't beat.
7: Luis Natividad is the vice-mayor of National City and a longtime supporter of Napoleon's.
8: So, it's a tradition, National
7: City, or late 50s, to, uh, to go there. There's no doubt in my mind it's the best pizza in the world. James works for the city and has been a regular for 10 years. He struggles to be heard over the busy afternoon lunch crowd as he sits at the bar awaiting his order.
6: I like the hand-tossed pizza, I mean the original crust. There's not many pizzerias left around where you can walk in and actually sit down and have a pizza that's hot off the press. And the cheesecake's homemade, freshly made, and the sausage is hand-made. and a lot of times we actually buy the sausage and take home with us.
7: Even though business is brisk, Peter can make a lot more dough just by expanding the beverage choices at the bar.
8: If we wanted to, we could serve uh, liquor, we have one of the oldest licenses in San Diego. We choose not to. We're just beer and wine because we don't want to go down that route. We pride ourselves on uh, fun for the whole family. It's that atmosphere that keeps the Shavers coming back.
1: That it was really uh, casual, felt kind of like you're at someone's house a little bit.
7: Shaver's son Joey is a 19-year-old college student who has taken in the Napoleon's experience since he was a toddler.
9: Um, I've been going there for as long as I can remember and I always used to get excited because they had little arcade games in the pool room. And also you know pizza is a favorite, favorite thing for kids so I always love going there.
7: Even though it's a national
9: city institution, the
7: pizzeria's appeal isn't limited by geography and doesn't end when folks move out of town. Sarah is waitressing the day shift.
1: I've been working here um, nine years. There's a lot of people that live from San Diego to another state and they come to visit San Diego and they always come back here. Love the food here and they say it's still the same.
7: The restaurant hasn't changed much through the years and the funky 50s decor, old time jukebox and high backed wooden booths are all part of the charm. This is the place that inspired a dishwasher named Tom Waits to write the heart of Saturday night. Peter does have an idea or two for improvements, but change progresses at its own pace here.
8: We're not changing anything. I got about 800 square feet that I could convert into more restaurant. Maybe I'll open on Sundays. You guys ready for that? It took, it took me uh, 17 years to get a ham and pineapple pizza on the menu. It also took me 23 years to get a credit card machine. He's also got an invitation
7: for folks who think they know how a pie should taste.
8: Come give us a shot. I guarantee it's the best pizza you've had on the West Coast. This is Old Sicilian Recipes, where you cannot find it.
7: Judy Rosales is a community member with strong ties to the restaurant. If you have grown up in National City, you know that Napoleon's is the place to go. After a baseball game, after a football game, we're all there. Kimberly is a longtime waitress who's got an opinion on the venue's appeal. It's a product of
1: generations and homemade good food and good prices and good atmosphere. So my kids have grown up on this food and everybody loves it.
7: It's hard enough to run a successful independent restaurant, let alone nurture a cultural institution, but it seems to
2: be working at Napoleon's. For City Stories, I'm Robert Bush.
5: Okay,
3: Bush, 15 minutes.
2: For fresh, artisan made Italian food served with a smile, check out Napoleon's Pizza at 619 National City Boulevard. Tell them Bush sent you. Graffiti is a great way to ignite a debate about art. Is it art? Is it a crime? Can it be both? Outsiders driving around National City can conjure up all these questions, but only the people that deal with graffiti on a daily basis can appreciate the evolution of the writing on the wall. I listened to both sides of the story to find out more. Graffiti has risen from vandalism to a counterculture art form over the past half century. Even though artists like Banksy have become pop culture icons, its origin and soul are as a language of the streets. Reactions to graffiti in National City range from pride to a sense of shame over the defacement of private property. Rafael Reyes is an accomplished artist in a variety of media who was introduced to graffiti when he was young.
9: So I was there in the 80s and saw the graffiti happening from a spark to the fire that it is now. Cops and robbers became graffiti. You know the the whole running around and hiding and this and that, which is kind of how it's addictive.
2: Outsiders might think that all of National City's graffiti is gang-related, but that's not the case. Officer John Doherty is part of the gang enforcement team in National City.
3: A
10: lot of the graffiti is gang graffiti, but there's also tagging crews, and they come up with their own little tagging crew names, and there are literally hundreds, if not more, of them out there. They're not. Uh, classified as criminal street gangs because they don't have uh, the organization that criminal street gangs do and they're not engaged in the same types of criminal activities that criminal street gangs are.
2: Kimball Park is well known for its graffiti, but not many people there are willing to talk about it. Understandable because it's a crime. Teens who did talk to city stories didn't want to be named.
6: (laughs) I guess it's a part of me because since I started skating back in middle school I always saw graffiti all over the place like the skate park and around my neighborhood.
2: An older kid spoke from a picnic table that was almost completely covered with tags and marker scrawl.
9: Writing on the benches, I mean, kind of makes the park look bad and stuff, but I mean, like, anyone could ride on a bench.
2: In the past, people seemed to be a lot more brazen identifying themselves as graffiti artists. Rafa.
9: You know what, in the 90s, people used to do it in the day. I remember, man, people would be like wolf packs, man, just packs of kids cruising around the streets with markers and cans and just bum-rushing buildings and not caring, and now you it's really just like a nighttime activity, you know.
2: With any art or method of communication, it evolves when we evolve. Officer Doherty.
10: Gangs would have to communicate in the days before the Internet, the day before social media, before cell phones, and graffiti really was the language of the streets. And uh, we don't see as much of the really... Uh, involved gang graffiti that's advertising what's going on in the gang because they have other means of communication, cell phones and social media and things like that and so a lot of the graffiti we see now is just roll call type graffiti or turf
2: marking graffiti. Not only has the message of the tagging found in National City changed, but the methods in which it is brought to the streets have changed as well.
9: Now there's like companies that make certain, you know, make it easier for the graffiti artists to get the, their name out there faster and easier, you know, the, the spray paint, you know, they make them now like bigger, two cans in one, you can get special tips when before you used to, you used to have to make all these things yourself, you know, you used to go and troubleshoot, you know, you'd go to stores and steal the caps off of different types of um, cans that were like, you know, maybe for Lysol cans or whatever. And you'd be like, oh, let me try to test this, you know, and sometimes you'd get a really cool tip.
2: Graffiti's visibility in National City has diminished as of late. Officer Doherty.
9: In the past, it could be up there for, you know, days, weeks,
10: years before anybody was able to deal with it because the onus really fell on that property owner, whoever owned that fence, whoever owned that wall or that business, to repaint it and not everybody can afford to do that. And it really was an unfair uh, burden to put on these people. But in the last several years, uh, a lot of cities have enacted their own graffiti abatement teams. And we have that here in National City.
2: Rafa.
9: There's walls out here in the city that you can go out all night and be out there for five, six hours doing the most elaborate, beautiful graffiti. And then it's painted over by the owner at six in the morning. The new thing is that you know that graffiti has a, lo- a short lifespan, so you, you do it and then you take a picture of it. And it's mostly just for that photograph.
2: The fact that both the gang tagger and the street artist has his art repeatedly painted over is not necessarily a bad thing. Officer Doherty.
10: You know, whether it's art or whether it's, uh, you know, a challenge to a rival gang or just marking your turf, you're still marking your turf on somebody else's property. And everybody has the right to their own property, and they have the right to have their own property unmolested.
2: Despite the negative effect that graffiti has on a community, there's a reason it keeps coming back. Rafa.
9: Things in life are created by individuals or people because there's a need for something. You know, so for whatever that need was, graffiti was created for it. That's the outlet for those people.
2: The debate over graffiti will be just as much a part of National City's culture as the graffiti itself. Although there is a need for it, this art form is still vandalism, and it affects people and businesses every day. That effect is constant, and the evolution of the writing on the wall is constant as well. For City Stories, I'm John Fink. To learn more about graffiti, check out Writer's Block just outside of National City at W-R-I-T-E-R-Z-B-L-O-K.com or just start watching for graffiti around town with an open mind. Among all the pizza joints, cars for sale, and graffiti, who would expect an organic, sustainable garden that teaches kids to connect with the earth, eat healthier, and appreciate where their food comes from? That's the cool thing about National City, though. It's all there. Olivewood Gardens is a beacon of rich soil, fresh veggies, and open-hearted education. City Stories reporter Sally Tinker Smith feels right at home here, and she tells us why.
0: On a grassy terrace overlooking the National City Golf Course sits the historic Victorian Noyes House. The hands-on learning center at Olivewood Gardens was created here when Walmart heiress Christy Walton donated her family home to the International Community Foundation. Vegetables grown on this very site once helped to heal her only son from a terminal disease, and she wanted the garden to be cared for and put to good use. Executive Director Healy Vigerson tells the story.
4: And so she was inspired to plant an organic garden. So the entire family went on a very strict juice diet. And Lucas, his four-and-a-half-year-old little boy at the time, was drinking six eight-ounce glasses of vegetable juice every day.
0: Lucas Walton is now in his 20s, living in Chicago. In the kitchen where Lucas once had juice for breakfast, students tie on aprons to prepare food they've harvested themselves. The Darling Kitchen is not just a cute name in craftsman style letters above the screen door. It's the namesake of founding chef Julie Darling. There was a lot of yous and no's, and I won't eat that, and I won't do this, and forget about it. They liked the hands on, but when it came to tasting and trying what they'd made, they were completely unwilling. To get kids on board, Julie created a pledge that kitchen educator Katie Butler leads every day.
4: Repeat after me. I promise. I, I promise. To always and everywhere.
11: To always and everywhere.
4: Take one big bite Take one big bite Of everything. Of everything. Of I before I say. Before I say. No thank you. No thank you. And, and I really, really, really mean it. I really, really,
11: really mean it.
0: It started with a single school. <laughs> okay. President of the International Community Foundation, Richard Kai.
11: I went over to see Luce, who is the principal at Olivewood School, and pitched the idea of a school garden. And I remember her response was interesting. She said, great idea, but we have no money for bus transportation, so I'm not sure how the kids are going to get there. I said, well, the school's seven blocks away from our property. Can't the kids walk?
0: Safety for pedestrians has been improving in National City, making it easier for kids to get around city engineer, Steve Manganello.
11: We've created a safe crossing on 24th Street. It's a lighted crosswalk. There's crossing guards there during the school peaks. And that gets them across the major arterial.
0: Returning over the course of three years, students experience the entire cycle of life, from seed to table and back again. It's their science class. Olivewood director Healy Vidgerson shares her passion for composting.
4: One of the types of composting that we do here is our worm composting. And you can actually, without even lifting up the cardboard, you can see all of the worms.
0: A side benefit to garden education is that it produces active and educated citizens who are open-minded and understand the issues. Richard Kai.
11: What I saw happening in San Diego after 9-11 was this growing tortilla curtain with a demarcation point around downtown.
0: Tomatoes Ripen just steps from his office at one of Healy's stops on the tour.
4: Behind us is our tomato teepee, made of bamboo poles.
0: The wide canopy of an ancient Morton fig shelters the welcoming front gate to the west, and in the distance, Mount Miguel, with the Sweetwater River at its base, frames the view to the east. This particular piece of land has a magnetic pull, and the gardening programs are flourishing. Richard Kai.
11: Today, Olivewood now is serving about 5,000 kids. So it's really exciting to see the transformation. When we look at the kids that are on our property on a regular basis, I see no difference in the kids here and the kids in Tijuana. Many of them have the same issues uh, and the same needs. We do see National City as a border community. I mean, literally from this property, you can see Tijuana.
0: Keeping the welfare of the entire region in mind, garden days are focused at the micro level, planting, harvesting, eating delicious meals, and returning kitchen scraps to the soil. Healy Viderson.
4: Just the other day, um, there was a little boy, a fifth grader, and he was learning how to measure the length of his finger and measure the length of his hand, and measure the length of his forearm so that he always has a constant measurement and he never has to carry a ruler around. And the reason we were teaching the kids measurement was to teach them how to space the plants apart when they're actually planting in the garden. And at the end of the lesson, he was so excited. He had a big smile on his face, and he said, Now I can go home and I can plant my own garden because I know how.
0: Our lives have become much too fast, separated from the values that our farming ancestors knew without knowing. Runaway obesity and diabetes are two of the consequences. Among the rows of lettuce and in the communal kitchen at Olivewood Gardens, understanding is growing. For City Stories, I'm Sally Tinker-Smith.
2: Olivewood Gardens has new volunteers training every month, and there's a public tour every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Find out more on their website at olivewoodgardens.org. A city's educational system says a lot about its people, so it's a very strong statement that so many graduates of schools in National City return to become teachers and lead the next generation through some of the challenges that they once faced. City Stories reporter and National City native Alvaro Castillo explores what he calls National City's circle of education.
6: At first glance, a classroom at Sweetwater Union High looks pretty average, but a closer look reveals that there's something deeper going on here. Many of the teachers and staff used to sit in the very seats the students now occupy. How many other schools can make the same claim? Former student Gerardo Santamaria now stands in front of his own U.S. History class.
5: A good majority of the teachers here you know come through Sweetwater. They seem to understand our, our population very very well. and it doesn't just you know s- stop at our teachers. It's, it's you know that's all the people. you see it in the counselors, the teachers, you know you, you see it everywhere, the assistants, the, the coaches, it's everybody comes back to you know to help out our, our students. And,
6: For some, returning to teach was never in doubt. For others, fate played a hand in leading them home. Our history teacher, May Garcia, attended Sweetwater High also known as Sue High.
1: The head of my department gave me my diploma, and he said, oh, you know, Ms. Garcia is a graduate of Sweetwater High School, and she's going to go on and get her teaching credential. And then he turned to me, and he said, oh, are you planning to go back to Sweetwater? And my first words out of my mouth were, if they'll have me.
6: Newly credentialed teachers don't have much choice about where they start out, but many know where they want to end up. US history teacher Tony Garcia. We moved
12: out of here for like five years. I taught in Oxnard, especially where we were. We wanted to come back
6: here. We don't want to be anywhere else. David Lerma grew up in National City in the 90s and worked hard to attend UCLA so he can return to contribute to the community. It was a nice community to grow up in, except that when I was growing up, there was a lot of gangs. National City does have that reputation. What can kids do to stay away from this distraction? Tony Garcia found a way out. When I was
12: growing up, there was a lot of gang activity around the area. But I mean, for the most part, I think you kind of knew if you were involved in certain things that you, you know, you're not going to get yourself in those
6: kinds of troubles. So kind of sports helped me travel a different path. To avoid temptation, it's a good idea to keep some acquaintances at arm's length. Gerardo Santa Maria kept in touch with his friends, but his eyes on the prize.
5: I was the lone remaining last man standing of all my friends. All the rest of them were gone. I was able to just try to make good decisions, stay neutral, wet my feet a little bit, and then, you know, still get along with, with with whatever was going down. I think that's what got me through, uh, through Sweetwater.
6: Immigrants have always been a part of the fabric of this city of 59,000. A vibrant mixture of cultures and languages is a part of everyday life. Lizeth Marquez is studying at SDSU with the goal of becoming a teacher.
9: It was
4: a little tough at first because both my parents were immigrants, so it was tough getting a house, and financially, I knew I couldn't ask for much.
6: May Garcia offers a teacher's perspective.
1: A lot of them are the first to graduate high school. They're the first to go to college. You know, I always look at them as like these scales. You know, on one side, they've got dedication, hard work, determination, and on the other side, they have fear and nervousness and, and you know, just being that, being a trailblazer, it's scary.
6: Common national city roots can make it easier for students to focus and teachers to teach. Sioux High instructor, May Garcia.
1: I'd never been in a place that was so welcoming and so accepting. Everyone welcomed me with open arms. The only thing they ever judged me by was the content of my character. It was the first time in my life I ever felt like I belonged anywhere.
6: UC Santa Barbara student and aspiring teacher, Myra Bernacci, is another product of Suhai.
8: It was lively.
4: It was, I don't know, I liked it. It was amazing. Um, Just the spirit, like, um, you knew everyone, everyone. You could relate to most of the people. There was was good communication with teachers, too. There was, like, that great relationship. There was a lot of bonding. It really felt like a
7: family. Like, you really did feel, like, the support and stuff. So it kind of was like a second
10: home.
6: Similar backgrounds doesn't mean there's no diversity. Tony Garcia. When we went to school
12: here at Sweetwater, there was everybody, there was blacks, there were Samoans, there were Filipinos, there was whites and Mexicans. So we kind of all got along. We, it was really a mixed culture. Extracurricular
6: activities can create a strong bond. May Garcia.
1: You know, we had great traditions of you know football and you know, every sport we dominated. And it was just fun to be here. And that pride was, oh my gosh, it was so, it was just pervasive everywhere.
6: Teacher Tony Garcia agrees. Sports
12: was really big at Sweetwater, with especially football and basketball too. But football, because I played football. You know, we, we ended up winning two CIF championships and that kind of kept you with your grades. And being a representative of the city, our coach really always said, you know, you're the only high school in the national city, so you, you have to represent it well.
6: There's a saying at Sweetwater, "Sue high pride worldwide. Although Sweetwater alumni are dispersed across the globe, the circle of education often ends where it began at the corner of 30th and Highland in National City. For City Stories, I'm
2: Alvaro Castillo. Experience is the best teacher. And with former students returning to National City again and again, each generation of teachers builds on the lessons that came before. The circle of education keeps turning. Stay current on community activities at nationalcityca.gov. Some people are actually afraid to visit National City others can't wait to leave. But for many, there's something about the city that draws them back. That's something most assuredly has to do with cultural diversity and heartfelt local pride. For City Stories reporters Jeff Smith, Robert Bush, Sally Tinker Smith, and Alvaro Castillo, I'm John Fink.
0: You've been listening to City Stories, produced by the students of Radio TV 141 at San Diego City College for KSDS Jazz 88.3. If you'd like to contribute to City Stories, send an email to citystories at jazz88.org.